0: And this week on the show, we have OpenZFS Storage Best Practices, Part 2 for you from Clara Systems. MNT Reform, almost a year on, and how it went. Why do I know Shell and how can you? Best practices and tips from Julio Marino. Authenticate the SSH servers you are connecting to. Good practice. Decent and Dragonfly BSD. You may want to check that out. Then navigating around in the Shell. Good practices for everyone, typing in a terminal for way too long, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 537, Authentic SSH Host, recorded on the 7th of December, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Hey, welcome. I hope you are enjoying the well early Christmas holidays maybe, or at least December. Uh maybe a little less snow, or well, if you're the snow lover, then the having the right amount. We love to have good content, and this is The episode that we have for you today (laughs) with good content. Wow, that was a bridge that's not all too good. Not very stable.
1: It's it's the seventh today. Do you celebrate something on the sixth normally, like in the part Germany you're from?
0: Oh yeah, of course. You know, you put up your uh, on the night before. You put out your your boots and maybe clean them a little bit, and then in the morning they're filled with stuff from the tooth fairy. No, I forgot. Saint Nicholas. (laughs) Yeah. That, that person, if you have been good. So were you good and this year? I, I was, yeah. Not always, <laughs> but most of the time. Karma isn't the positive, I guess, if it's, it's uh, measurable.
1: It, it, it's good to know. <laughs> I mean, so in the future, you, people will learn this. Um, we, we learned about the Austrian tradition in my German class, so the last class of the year. And ah. they also have the bad guy. They have Krampus who comes and hits you with a stick. Yeah. Do, do you have this or is this just like a... Uh, we have,
0: uh, it's called Knecht south. Ruprecht in German, but same role, he does take care of the bad children or the bad people. What, and in German called? you can say uh, Knecht Ruprecht.
1: That's a really complex compound word.
0: Yeah, and people have played a role on it or played a, a name game on it, called it Knecht Rootrecht. So, root permission. Root for root and recht for permission. And yeah, that's kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, so like Nicholas gives you the, the presents and, you know, uh, the other accompanying person does, uh, you know, hit you with a stick or whatever
1: <laughs> is around. You know, FreeBSD doing all these releases in in November, which they are very frequently scheduled for my birthday, but they always slip. Um, uh. It'd be funny to do to get some artwork for like um, Saint Nicholas Day because there's always yeah. like every other year there's a FreeBSD release on Saint Nicholas Day. It might be we a couple definitely of weeks old,
0: but get better you know, in the art department. There it ages
1: to... it ages much better than fine milk. So <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so why don't we start with headlines this week and we have a continuation? Remember when uh, Jason and I were talking about. Uh, the Clara article, OpenZFS, Storage Best Practices and Use Cases, part one back then, and this is part two now. And it continues where we left off, talking about all the good things uh, OpenZFS. We've done this many times, but this is the best practice parts. remember? And it starts off with... Uh, Continuing where we left off with part one, this week we're looking at tuning OpenZFS for specific use cases involving file serving and large-scale storage area networks. Providing data sharing service as a NAS or a SAN is one of the most common use cases for OpenZFS. And while while it will work well out of the box, with the right tuning and optimizations, it can provide best-in-class performance. So they have a use case here. They start with file serving and or data warehousing. Uh, One of the widespread uh, use cases, popular ones, of OpenZFS is a generic file server, which may mean an office file server or bulk data storage for scientific research. This one is the simplest, least challenging workload around, and most people will not need any sort of performance optimization to make it work. The workload involves moving files around largely intact with little or no random access inside those files required, and in most cases, the individual files are large as well. Yeah, that's what I do. I basically provide a couple of you know, NFS shares to individual VMs so they don't need the uh, local files themselves and just grab them when they need it, and they, of course, have the read-only bit set to... Uh, true and no one can delete even root uh, from those virtual machines. Going back to the article topology. Since this isn't a very challenging workload we're free to choose a topology that maximizes fault tolerance and storage efficiency, f- storage efficiency rather than one which maximizes bare metal performance. If you've got a lot of disks they likely mean rates at 2. Ideally in VDEVs 4, 6 or 10 disks wide. Depends on how much money you can spend. Once you've picked your topology, you will want to set a relatively large record size on the datasets used for file service, even if the individual files average considerably smaller. Ah, that's a good tip. This is because OpenZFS can and does automatically store small files in small blocks. A 3-kilobyte file will be stored in a single 4-kilobyte sector, regardless of record size, but larger files are split into chunks of the record size, and fewer chunks will provide more efficient storage they uh, list tunables here. Keeping our record size large when random access inside files is rarely required does several things for us. It minimizes fragmentation, reduces IOPS necessary to fulfill requests, and maximizes compression ratios. This is also ideal for large media files and other similar use cases. If you are specifically running a Linux file server and you have lots of files, especially small ones, you may also want to consider setting the extended attributes equals to SA, so that's XATTR equals SA, which makes OpenSS uh, open ZFS, of course, a store a file's metadata inside the first block of the file itself, rather than a separate object. They have a section about support VDEFs. If your file server primarily interacts with other machines via NFS, that's my use case, you may want to consider a log. Most NFS exports are synchronous, which means acceleration of sync writes will drastically increase performance. But if you aren't using NFS, or if you're specifically using asynchronous NFS, not okay with the fact you don't need a log and uh, having one won't make your system go any faster. You might consider a cache VDEF, also known as an L2ARC for your file server. But cache V. VDEF tends to provide far less benefit than most users assume they will. It's almost always better to spend that money on more RAM rather than on an SSD to use as a cache Okay. Uh, They talk a bit about uh, special VDEF, uh, which can be useful in systems with very wide, slow VDEFs, uh, like 10 wide RAID set 2 on rusty disks. The special stores uh, metadata blocks itself rather than on the pool's main storage, which can significantly accelerate metadata-heavy operations, such as listing or calculating the size of millions of files. Yeah, I don't have that many, but good tip for uh, when that use case comes along. Another use case in the list here is massive storage uh, servers for uh, sans, for example. If you're building a truly massive storage system, anywhere from 60 drives to hundreds of drives, the sheer size of your pool can become more important than the individual workloads running beneath it. Yeah, if your zpool status command scrolls multiple times over the screen, then you have too many disks in there. But never can have enough. Most massive servers are used primarily for simple file service, possibly with a few light database workloads thrown in for fun. It's not usually a good idea to run performance-critical databases on massive servers, since latency is the most critical metric for databases, and it's difficult to ensure predictable latency from massive systems with higher user counts and variable workloads. The topology for that is... Uh, similar rates at VDEVs, this can mean 6 wide or 10 wide rates at 2 VDEVs or 7 wide or 11 wide rates at 3 VDEVs even. Remember, narrow VDEV means higher performance but less usable storage. The wider you go, the lower and less predictable your performance will get. Finding the right trade-offs take experience and knowledge of ZFS internals. Uh, they talk about spares as well, so that's uh, also good to consider. They also have a little section on D-rate and link to another article about introdu- introduction to d uh, They list a couple of tunables here: uh, a time equals off, of course, and also the extended attributes equals SA. Uh, they talk here as well about the log and cache properties or support VDEFs and the special small blocks tunable. They conclude at the end with, there are many considerations when building critical infrastructure, especially storage, but you don't have to do it alone. Clara's ZFS design implementation solution will guide you through every step of the process, from picking the right hardware and pool layout to getting your new storage server integrated into your environment. Clara has designed storage servers for every size, from small, special purpose, all NVMe NASs, to enormous 10P, wow, PB pools for massive data sort, that's really massive and everything in between. Are you looking to run a database on your VM infrastructure on top of ZFS? Watch out for part three of our ZFS best practice series where we discuss how to tune ZFS for those workloads. Okay, so you can make sure that uh, when that comes out, we will feature it also on this show.
1: We didn't didn't really tune the ordering of the shows. If we, one day we want to get back to doing live streams, but we're, we're not currently there. Uh, but yeah. if we did live stream, everyone would know that we recorded um, 239, 239, 539 <laughs> nine yesterday. Um, and now we're two shows earlier. And so everything's everything's warped. And all the jokes I made yesterday about stuff we have recorded in the past are now coming true. What? Well, past yeah, shows, it's yeah, the time machine thing. <laughs> the, the reason we don't have time travel is it's just too confusing. So we have yeah, a, right. a blog post on geekland.co.uk uh, from Seven. Um, and Seven writes, uh, my Mountain Reform almost a year on. I assembled my Mountain Reform almost a year ago, and that's a link to another blog post. This post is about how things have gone on with the Reform since then. When I assembled the laptop at the time, I refrained from making any changes and just assembled the system as instructed. The change I had in mind was to toggle the switch on the CPU module in order to change the boot sequence so that it could be possible to boot from the storage onboard the CPU module, the EMFC, as the primary boot device. I wanted to change it so that I could add the boot loader there and set up the root cell system on the NVMe drive with ZFS. Since the switch is tucked under the CPU's heatsink, I was worried with the slip of the hand, before I'd even started using the machine, I would have screwed it up and damaged something. So the stock setup it was, and I've been with that since then. I. Bought the Matin Reform kit to assemble with 8th 9K wireless card, sleeve, a print and handbook, trackball and trackpad modules. I started off with a trackball instead and intended to switch over to the trackpad after some time. I've yet to switch to the trackpad, the buttons on the trackball module give a nice click, and it feels nice to use so I've stuck with it. The Wi-Fi connectivity in my place isn't great, and even with other hardware and operating systems including mobile phones, throughput is sort of lacking. For the reform, the antenna struggles with maintaining connectivity. So I worked around it by using Ethernet, which is fine at home. Outside, it's not so much of an issue if I'm tethering, since the device acting as the access point is usually within very close proximity or where the access point is in the same room as the machine rather than the opposite opposite side of the property. The laptop came with sorry. Um I read a a, a zine by Stanley Lieber, who's one of the blind nine front people today. Um it's called Th- I, I don't know, you can censor that. And in there, he did a review of Plan 9 <laughs> hardware. And one of the things he said was, put the antenna cable underneath the trackpad is much better. And I just thought that was the funniest Wait. solution to a problem ever. <laughs> uh, with the mountain reform, he was just like, just move the antenna cable is much better. Um, anyway, to continue with Seven's uh, article, the laptop came with the V3 system image based on Debian SID on stable train on a Transcend SD card, which I'm still using. Performance of the SD card was good, and this was my first time running Debian Sid. Despite being the unstable train, it's been fairly painless. I vaguely recall a package bug which caused issues with updates in the early days, but since then it's been fine. Color me impressed. The only thing is the sheer volume of package updates on a weekly basis. Give it a week or so, and this is a couple hundred packages to update. I installed ZFS via DKMS, which I then used to create a Z pool with my NVMe drive. The NVMe drive has a swap partition on it and a Z pool with my data. Um, OS currently lives on the supplied SD card along with the root of my home directory. Oh, it scares me so much to have your laptop running on an SD card. The system image is Debian SID with a specific kernel and drivers for the reform, along with some tools and customizations to make the system more welcoming, such as a login banner, which lists useful commands at hand. Defined as shell functions like chat when called invokes an IRC client and joins the Matin Reform channel, or Reform Handbook, which displays the system handbook in a browser. The system image comes with KDE, GNOME 3, Sway, Window Maker, and all pre-installed. I tried Sway briefly since it is a performant window manager but soon rolled back to GNOME 3 due to familiarity. The system image comes with a bunch of apps pre-installed such as KeyCAD, ScumVM, FreeCAD, Inkscape. It sets a nice tone for the machine as a creative space and it's pretty much how I've used the machine in this time. I have had, to, I have kept it separate from my daily environment and used to get away from the usual where I want to focus on something. Of the reform-specific packages which are installed, there is a reform check utility, which performs a sanity check on the configuration and makes suggestions for new changes which have been integrated into newer builds, such as missing packages shipped with the system image and outdated uBoot. So it's easiest to maintain an installed OS and reduces inconsistencies. With Debian support for running different ABIs, it has been possible to run Steam on the reform. Since you're running a duplicate user space, it has made a number of updates balloon. But apart from that, it just works. The hardware is sufficient to play Thimbleweed Park, but the games needing more advanced OpenGL will support, will run, but won't display so much so <clears throat> but. Games needing more advanced OpenGL support will run, but won't display. So for example, Monkey Island 4 runs, but there's just a black window. Since the system is using the open source driver for the Vivanti GC7000 GPU, I wondered if I could make it, if it could be made to work using the vendors closed blob binary driver, since that supposedly has support for newer OpenGL, but I've not tried. The swap on NVMe was necessary here since uh, Steam will use up all four gigabytes of RAM and work its way through the swap too. It really needs eight gigabytes of RAM. But that's fine. There's no noticeable frame rate drop in the high pace uh, action of point and click adventures. Outside of Steam, the GPU is capable of handling Monkey Islands 1 and 2. And the Minecraft clone mind test, which ships with the system image, works just fine. But I'm not really a gamer, so take that um, as you go. I've enjoyed looking at the machine just as much as using it. The Japanese keyboard layout with the backlight looks beautiful. The ability to take the machine apart easily has made a world of difference, it's not a chore to investigate issues or perform maintenance. Need to reflash the keyboard, unscrew six screws, lift the bezel, need to replace the new firmware on the motherboard, 10 screws, lift the base panel. Since I built the laptop, I've made two hardware changes. Originally, the keycaps did not have a notch for the home row index keys. And since the layout is a little different to usual, it was a bit disorientating switching between machines with different keyboards. That's no longer an issue, as there are notch keycaps available, which I purchased and installed. The battery board which came in the laptop originally had a couple of issues which were addressed in the updated battery board. With the original battery board, I needed a full battery charge if I was going to compile the ZFS kernel modules, Otherwise, the batteries would not sustain the prolonged surge in use. The upgraded battery board, this is no longer a problem. I'm still using the original cells that came to the laptop. Uh, the laptop is fast to recharge them, but there's a short delay of around 30 seconds before the system detects the charger is connected and switches over. This has caught me out when I realized at the very last moment that I'm about to run out of power and hurry to connect a charger to a power outlet. Unfortunately, I don't have numbers on runtime of batteries as the system gets switched off in between uses, and I'm not bothered with fighting sleep resume. The original battery board caused issues with system sleeping and later. Kernel bugs prevent the system from resuming correctly. A hardware feature I've yet to use the HDMI port to connect to an external display. The built in LCD panel is nice to look at. Since I'm not using full disk encryption on the SD card, I use a uh, YubiKey for SSH keys. The orientation of the USB port means the YubiKey touchpad is facing down. Oh no, uh, which is a little annoying to use. But since it flashes when you need to touch it, it's not something that's going to go forgotten though it is somewhat clumsy to lift the laptop up to touch. I have a small USB hub for, for that. The headphone socket is fine with headphones with syring- cylindrical connectors like Apple earphones, but if your headphones use another shape jack like the L-shaped 3-pole, it won't be able to fully go into the socket. This is due to the socket being positioned over slightly over the back. One completely cosmetic mistake I made in assembling the machine on the first day is sticking the label with the unit details on the Perspex cover above where the CPU heatsink is yeah this is a great review of the laptop 7 continues for a bit um if you don't know what the mountain reform is you should look up the crowdfunding campaign and they still make these computers and they're being continually upgraded uh i think we're going to cover them more because i hung out with lucas for a day this summer and it was great fun um and i quite like open hardware um yeah very nice
0: Okay, in our news roundup, we have an article from Giulio Marino about why does he know Shell and how can you? So uh, that was a question he was uh, asked a couple times at work, apparently. That's how his article starts. And so, yeah, why and how can you learn it too? There is no secret here, he writes... I know the shell well because I was forced, in quotes, to write tools for it a while and uh, because of that I made a conscious effort to learn the language and get better at it. You see, most people that write shell don't want to deal with it. They stitch together whatever works into a script and call it a day. That's how my students do it most of the time. Sorry, making a bunch of spaghetti even if it goes against the coding best practices they already know. No, not all of my students are like that. Um, And when they encounter some old syntax they don't recognize, their reaction is to say, "Mm, this has to be rewritten in Python. Instead of taking a breath and trying to really understand what's going on, it doesn't help that plenty of senior engineers scoff at shell scripts. And it is true. The shell is arcane and has many flaws as a programming language. I don't want to convince you to start writing new tools in it, but the shell is also an incredible rapid prototyping language and you can use it to solve business problems really quickly and with surprisingly little code. If you pause for a second to learn it, you'll realize that you can bend tradition and write maintainable shell code too. Hear out how you or how he got into writing so much shell and how you can get better at it. Uh, here in this uh, next section, he talks about the constraints of the BSD systems because that's related to his uh, quest in the shell area. In the late 1990s, I discovered Linux and soon after the BSDs. I had a brief stint with OpenBSD and FreeBSD at first, but by the early 2000s, I had settled on NetBSD as my daily driver. My dream had always been to create my own operating system, but the more I learned and tried to write, on, uh, the wa- or write one, the more I realized I wasn't up to the task yet. Thus NetBSD was the perfect fit for me. All my hardware worked on it, but the system had enough rough edges that I saw the opportunity to become a contributor to a real operating system. NetBSD and all of the BSDs really are full operating system distributions. Unlike Linux, the source code for the kernel, user space tools, and documentation lives in a single source tree, monorepo, repo, maintained by a single group of developers. This source tree is known as the base system and every other third party app comes via the port system or package source NetBSD specific parlance. If this is hard to imagine, visualize your typical Windows installation when you perform a fresh install of Windows 7, not 10 or 11 because these get random junk auto-added. What you get is a collection of software that Microsoft has itself developed and chosen to be the basis to form Windows. Everything you add to it later on, be it Microsoft or other vendors, is not part of that base installation. A constraint of this arrangement is that the code in a beast base system is self-hosting, i.e. base system must be able to build itself, so it must include the compilers and the interpreters required to build and run its code. In BSD, during the early 2000s, this meant choosing between C, C++, and shell. Lua has been added as a fourth choice since. It is, of course, possible to write tools for BSD system in any language that's not in the base system, but doing so means that the tool is relegated to live in the port system. To make matters worse, the common practice in the BSDs was to build everything from source. Pre-built binary packages existed, but were inflexible and usually stale. That has changed by now, and thus users frown upon heavy dependency. Or dependencies. If your tiny tool required Perl or Python, for example, it would be dead on arrival because of the heavy tax imposed by the interpreter. If I recall correctly, building Perl on my Pentium 2 took something like fifteen minutes, and building it on a <laughs> 68k Mac I had took <laughs> took hours. Yeah, of course, that was way back when. So he talks a bit about more um, uh, in contributing tools to NetBSD and. Uh, that got him back into the shell scripting. But here's a section that I guess most people will find interesting. How can you get better at the shell yourself? And he has provided a list of uh, eight points, bullet points, and here they go. I could probably write a whole book on this topic, and I've thought about doing so. Would you
1: read it? Yeah, well, you should do am, it. Maybe. Write a book. There yeah. should be six books on you shell. You should ask yourself. Yeah. we but should all have I can to, do right now... We should, we should have to get this question every week of like, what's the best book on shell? You'd be like, well, you could read the one by J M V M M V, or you could yeah. read Devin's uh, one, That's the new reference, or you could read Benedict's one. Like, there's so many of them. Like, <laughs> they have different opinions. That takes a while to write. has a lot of weird so jokes. Far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, the number one is read about the language. The shell is small. Once I decided I want to get better at the shell, I just opened the shell manual page and read it. Uh, It will take you less than an hour to go through the whole document. You might choose to also read the Bash manual page and you probably should particularly become aware of its many unnecessary non-standard features. Number two, familiarize yourself with the Unix toolchain. Yeah, that's fairly uh, straightforward. Grab, set, and find, for example. Many of these you can use in your shell scripts. The third is understand how process creation, fork, and exec, and argument passing work in Unix. The shell is primarily designed to interact with subprocesses, so knowing these topics in detail is crucial to only understand how quoting, globs, redirection, and pipelines work, and also to understand the difference between built-in and external reference or external commands. And... Ah, yeah. Number four, write shell scripts following the good programming practices you already know. Avoid global variables. Factor code into functions. Minimize side effects. Write unit and or integration tests. Yes, shell allows that too. It can be unconditionally strict, like double quote all variable expansions to correctly handle whitespace characters, even if it's most cases you may not need to do so. Number five, think in terms of data flow. The shell is about combining tools as pipelines, not writing your usual imperative for loops. The more you can reason about solving problems with pipelines, the simpler and more performant your script will be. Functional programming for the win. Number six, read Google's Shell Style Guide. Number seven, use Shell Check. And number eight, finally, take a look at his short readability series on the Shell from 2013. Okay, that is not a good thing to go right into our you know, uh, show notes. Click on this link and find more about this than I don't know
1: what is. Uh, I, I think... I think he's missing, like, have fun.
0: That too, yeah, number like, nine.
1: Y- you need to... The thi- the things cool. I've enjoyed the most doing are uh, easily... Just, easy, best described as the crimes I've committed against computing, and <laughs> you can commit so many crimes with a shell script. Of um, course. Only... But also good stuff. Only, like, two weeks ago, I was trying to get... Um, xargs args to generate um, a work queue for um, T shark sub processes so I could process PCAPs. Oh. So I was trying to run like um, the number of cores of T sharks and, and there was some quoting because I didn't I want to redirect the output from the script. I, I had written the script, I could have just fixed it. I wanted to redirect the output and so I was playing with the shell script and I was getting closer and closer to getting it running and I got the T-Sharks to run in parallel and I realized that they all stample over locks the other ones hold and so it's Uh impossible Um, but without a shell script I wouldn't have been able to do that Um, it's so much fun you can cause so much trouble like shell scripts are great for one-off automation and you can just break all the rules knowing knowing the rules helps when your shell scripts grow too big but you don't give a chance to have a budding shell scripts you know your budding shell script doesn't get a life unless you start it and don't worry about, like, the stuff, stuff will help you later and when you've normalized things, but you can have so much fun with the shell script. I wrote a yeah. shell script to control some programmable LEDs once. Mm. Where is that shell script? I don't know. But- Everyone wants it now. <laughs> you've kind of teased it. <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, it's on my GitHub. Um, but yeah, like, it's... The the shell is really powerful, and the composability of Unix is amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wish someone would write a shell where shell functions um, could be run as sub-processes. That would would be Mm. perfect. That would make things so much easier because I spend a lot of time um, composing things which are made of multiple shell scripts because sometimes I need to run them in the background. And being able to run a shell function in the background would just be perfect, but not there there yet. Maybe maybe I'm asking too much, but I love shell. (laughs) It's so much fun.
0: Maybe someone out there has something like that already and yeah, give it to us. Um, or I think it's devin it.
1: They've wrote a book uh, on the shell in FreeBSD. Oh yeah, I, that, I learned a ton from that. It was really high quality. Do you still have
0: that link? I was I looking for
1: it a while ago, but never. actually <laughs> uh,
0: if you're out there, tell us, or if one of our listeners has this, send this to feedback at BSDnauta team. We will be happy to share this again with everyone.
1: Yeah, I I don't think it was that that taught me how to get around the lack of arrays in Unix shell, but once I figured that out, everything was perfect. Yeah, that's. They had a lot of gems and nuggets in there. That
0: was like I never would have thought this was possible. Uh, yeah,
1: if you're if you're trying to um if you're trying to figure out how to get around the lack of arrays in Unix shell, you need to look at the set operator. Um, uh. So you know when you get command line arguments in a shell script, sure. so you can run set on any string, and that will replace the command line arguments with that string.
0: And that is
1: how you can get a race. Uh. So yeah, it's it's great. There's so much trouble you can cause with a shell script. Yeah. I mean
0: in the in the lecture I go, I add a little bit more uh C dialogue programming to it so that they can have dialogues and you know buttons Fancy. And, press and yeah. <laughs> and then I start with the progress bars and let them move and display like uh, Zpool scrub progress in these progress bars, since it shows a percentage sign or a percentage of progress, and that's nice to see.
1: Oh, that's Um, cool. Okay, uh, away from causing trouble with shell scripts and onto secure shell scripts. Uh, We have a blog post from Celine because Celine writes a lot. Um, Authenticate the SSH servers you are connecting to. This is something the FreeBSD cluster does for you. Um, If you're a FreeBSD developer. (laughs) (laughs) It's common knowledge that SSH connections are secure. However, they always had a flaw. When you connect to a remote host for the first time, how can you be sure it's the right one and not tampered with? That's you get on a plane and you fly out to the machine and you have a cup of coffee with it and you share your life story. Talk about it. Oh, no, Celine's <laughs> got a better option. Um, SSH uses what we call uh, trust on first use or tofu. I like tofu. When you, I wanted to call the cat tofu, but but I was overridden. <laughs> uh, tofu is a great name for a cat, even if the cat is not white. Um, When you connect to to a remote server for the first time, you have a key fingerprint displayed, and you are asked if you want to trust it or not. Without any other information, you can either blindly trust it or deny it and not connect. Um, Listeners can write in and anonymously report how often they just uh, uh, accept any fingerprint, and we will not shame you, but it would be good to know. If you trust it, the key's fingerprint is stored locally in in the file known hosts, and if the remote server offers you a different key later, you'll be warned and the connection will be forbidden because the server may have been replaced by a malicious one. And then you edit non-hosts and, and just ignore that too. Um, let's try an analogy. It's a bit like if you, had, if you only had a post-it note with supposedly your bank phone number on it, but no way to verify if it really was your bank on that number. That'd be pretty bad. However, using an up-to-date, trustable public reverse lookup <laughs> directory... You could check that the phone number is genuine before calling. What we have done, what we can do to improve the tofu situation. (laughs) (laughs) The cooking space. I I just remembered being at EMF camp and they were like pressing 40 kilos of tofu. Yeah, I could could help deal with that Tofu situation. What we can do (laughs) to improve the Tofu situation is to publish the server's SSH fingerprint over over DNS, so when you connect, SSH will try to fetch the fingerprint if it exists and compare it with what the server is offering. This only works if the DNS server uses DNSSEC, which guarantees the DNS answer hasn't been tempered with in the process. It's unlikely that someone would be able to simultaneously hijack your SSH connection to a different server and also craft valid DNSSEC replies. It's also quite unlikely that your sysadmin will be able to craft valid DNSSEC replies. Um, The setup is really simple. We need to gather the fingerprints of each key, they exist in multiple different crypto, on a server securely and publish them as SSHFP DNS entries. If the server has your keys, you need to update its SSHFP entries. We will use the cool ssh-keygen, which contains a feature to automatically generate DNS records for the server on which the command is running. For example, on my server, interbus.perso.pw, I will run ssh-keygen-r and then domain to get the records. You certainly noted that I use an extra dot, there's an extra dot at the end of uh, interbus.perso.pw. Uh, you certainly notice I use an extra dot, this is because they will be used the DNS records, so either use the full domain name with the extra dot to indicate you're not giving a subdomain. Use only the subdomain part. This would be interbus in the example. If you use interbus.perso.pw without the dot, this would be taken for the domain interbus.perso.pw.perso.pw because it would be treated as a subdomain. Note that dash r arg isn't used for anything, but the raw text output. This doesn't make ssh keygen to f- f- fetch the contents of the remote URL. How to use your SSHFP on your OpenSSH client. By default, if you connect to my server, you would see this output at pw. The authenticity of host can't be established. The key fingerprint is, this key is not known by any other names. Are you sure you want to continue connecting? Yes, no fingerprint. It's telling you the server isn't in known hosts yet, and you have to trust it, or or not, but you wouldn't connect. However. With the option verify host DNS key set, yes, the fingerprint will automatically be accepted if the one offered is found in an FP entry. As I explained earlier, this only works if the DNS enter and DNS answer is valid with regard to DNSSEC. Otherwise, the saying DNA, a verified host key entry DNS will automatically falls back to ask, asking you to manually check with DNS FP found and if you want to accept or not. For example, without working DNSSEC, the output would look like this. SSH-O verify host key to SC equals yes, uh, the host. Authenticity of host can be established, the fingerprint is. Matching host key fingerprint found in DNS, this key is not known by any other names, are you sure we want to connect? With working DNS sec, you should immediately connect without any TOFU, oh no TOFU, without any TOFU prompt, and the host fingerprint won't be stored in known hosts. SSH-SSH... SSHFP is difficult to say. SSHFP is a simple mechanism to build a chain of trust using an external service to authenticate the server you're connecting to. Another method uh, to authenticate from a server would be to use SSH certificate. I'll save that one for later. Going further, we saw that verify host key DNS is reliable, but it doesn't save the fingerprint in the file known hosts, which can be an issue if you need to connect later to the same server and you don't have a working DNSSEC resolver. You'd have to blindly trust the server. However... You could generate the required output from the server by to be used by known hosts when you use DNS set, when you have DNSSEC working, so the next time you don't have to rely on DNSSEC. Know that if the server is replaced by another one and its SSH FP records updated accordingly, this will ask you what to do if you have the old key in known hosts. To gather the fingerprints, connect to the remote server, which will be remoteserver.local in the example, and add the command output to your known SSH file. Um, SSH key scan localhost, some sad. Read, read the article. Uh, we admit the. Do- blah, 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 blah. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Lynn. This is a great article. I, I would set this up if I had more computers because I love tofu. Mm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I use SSH key scan in our crazy uh, Hadoop setup at work where we have to uh, let the master know all the SSH keys for the clients. And, or the workers, and so they all need to know each other's SSH key before continuing so that they can build this uh, Hadoop distributed file system, and that's what I use to scan the other hosts, and they exchange these keys this way and know about each other. Okay, yep. The next item is from Dragonfly BSD. We don't hear much about them, but when we do, we cover them of course and this one is from the dragonfly bsd digest and d in dragonfly apparently elements of d synth the mass package builder for dragonfly are now appearing in the base system and that's a link or a couple links uh to uh, articles explaining these further it looks like this is most helpful for building packages as part of the base install but there might be other applications so this is in the tree and uh, the Links uh, point to commit messages from Matthew Dillon, for example, to build worlds and add all the ports needed for the end release base. So if you're interested in these kinds of activities, check out the articles or the the links pointing from this one and maybe try out Dsynth and Dragonfly. And report back
1: to us if that's interesting to you. I learned a wonderful Dragonfly fact this summer, but I can't remember it. So here's a Dragonfly fact. Dragonflies can fly backwards
0: yeah they're like helicopters right and they can do that yeah well, I mean yeah you know <laughs> dragonflies rarely have a tail rower that's true yeah they're one dimensional in this kind of they you know really to their
1: game out come on dragonflies as a species <laughs> you can pull together um okay last up into today's um uh show content <laughs> I can't remember what we do uh okay next up we have a blog post from um mean me i'm sorry I, this is your name um M- mean he, 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 it might be irish let me click on the about page i would really like pronunciation notes
0: uh it's not helped, like, has with it. phonetics and all aben a- simon simon in the about uh a software engineer by profession like building it. things and solving problems that's right
1: up our alley, right? Th- this this person has written a blog post navigating around in your shell. And as you learned very recently, we love the shell. Um, they write, I have been using terminals for a long time initially because I thought they looked cool. I, I I want to admit that I think the reason I have this career is that I thought people typing in a terminal was really cool. And yep. that steered my entire life. Uh, this, this is and- me, not um, Abin. Um, Not clicking, no windows, no nothing. Just I, I think I, I think I just want to stay in front of a terminal. I didn't yeah, a it's hoodie. a special experience, right? I'm so happy every day when I'm working. Like, yeah, do the blinking time cursor. Time, if you plan have that,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't need much but a cursor and a blinking or a terminal to, okay. to type on.
1: Um, I've been using terminals for a long time, initially because I thought they looked cool, they are cool, and later because I genuinely found them to be easier, faster to get stuff done. And since I've been at it for a while, navigating through directories is something I think I've gotten good at. Big claim. In this blog post, I would like to give some tips and ways you can navigate around your shell quickly. I rarely type cd to change directories. We've already diverged because I type cd by accident a lot. I get the same feeling when you get when you see people Google for Google.com on Google, um, when you see people Ugh. typing cd dot, dot repeatedly. Okay. So throwing a lot of shade here. Uh, basics. Using cd. We all know the basics. Um, cd directory to navigate to a directory. But here are a few things you can use cd for. cd new args is equivalent to cd home. cd hyphen takes you to the previous directory, not the parent directory. cd dot, dot takes you to the parent Make use of that tab key. This might sound simple, yeah. but you have no idea how many times I've had a painful experience of watching people type out a path by hand and even end typing them incorrectly. Let's add some useful aliases. Now that we know some basics, let's add some aliases. Here are ones I really like. I would suggest adding aliases for the following to the previous directory and multiple levels of parent directories. I initially got this idea from oh my Zsh. You can use this in directories. Um, alias dash dash cd dash alias dot, dot cd dot 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 cd dot, dot slash dot 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 cd dot slash dot slash dot 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 cd dot slash dot dot slash dot dot, slash, dot <laughs> I don't how often do you need to do this? Um make use of globs. I never know mm. like how many you need to go up. <laughs> um if you know yeah, like, parts CD- of a path, you can always use globs and let the shell figure out the exact path. Use this along with tab completion to make it even more powerful. For example, you can do cd source slash star star color to find a directory named color in the current working directory. Uh, well, no, in a subdirectory, like, yeah, I guess, but you, you can do this everywhere. Built ins, uh, all fix small errors. Since my blog is mostly read by humans, um, you don't know if we're human. I still not figured mm. out know who Bob Benedict is. Last time I checked. Um, <laughs> It claims to be human. Since my blog is mostly read by humans, I'm sorry, bots, you're in a minority. And since humans make mistakes, this one is for you. I would suggest enabling these two options. The first one ignores the case. Um SHOP case no glob, ignore case when matching. Uh, SHOP CD spell, fix common spelling mistakes. That sounds terrifying. Um when why type CD if you don't have to? If you enable the following options, you can just type the name of the folder. And if there is no binary by that name in your path, your shell will C D into that. Uh, sh- at sh-op-s-auto-cd. Sh- That's terrifying. Remembering a directory. What if you want to move around a lot, but what if you're frequently on the move but need to still organize and revisit specific directories easily? Using pushd and popd can be incredibly beneficial to keep... Something's gone wrong here. something got gone mangled. Uh, keep track of certain directories specifically to come back to. Pushd and popd are your friends. Um, It makes a stack. Bookmarks. Hash is a way for you to bookmark directories. I use it to bookmark directories that I visit often. By default, the bookmarks are only per session, but you can add a bit more code to make it persistent. The best part is that if you use these as prefixes to construct full paths, for example, if I have a bookmark, tilde slash dot local slash share, tilde share, I can later do things like cd tilde share slash emacs. Here are the additions I have. Um, It's a shell function. Use the cd path environment variable. You can even set this environment variable with the paths you would like to always cd into. For example, if I set it to export cd path equals home slash dot config, uh, colon home slash dot local share, I can cd into any directories in home dot config on home dot local share from any location. Moreover, these paths will be incorporated into your shell completions. Make a directory and cd into it. I saw this in a Unix book once. So I still don't know why you would do it. Um, I more than often, more often than not, find myself having to create a directory and cd into it. Can't cd into it if it doesn't exist. Uh, I use a function called take for this. It's one of those gems I took from all my SSH. And it goes make-p $1, cd $1. Navigate to a project root. Um, yeah, there's a lot of these. Uh, this is a good article. You should look up the show notes because uh, I'm sure you'll find something interesting in there. I might look up what hashes if I remember because it could be useful. Yeah, that looks
0: new to me as well. So but, uh can be probably uh, become handy and the next uh, thing I'm trying out.
1: BSD now is sponsored by TarSnap. Everyone needs backups, and TarSnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. TarSnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated. It then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key, and this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. TarSnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more
0: okay this time we have feedback and questions for you two were sent in and we covered them here first one is from brad who has been sending us semi-regularly stuff and always good questions so thanks brad and here Goes this one. Hi, Brad. Howdy guys, I have been running FreeBSD for several years now and I love it. Welcome to the club. However, one thing has been driving me crazy. When I started using FreeBSD in the 12.0 days, it seemed that there were only a few options for managing jails, building from scratch, Warden, and Io However, now in the latter part of the 13.0 or 14 even, it seems like there are many, many jail managers. Scratch jails, Warden, IOCage, CBSD, Busty, and so forth. There are enough that it seems most people end up finding and landing on a solution and stay there. and Migrating to a new solution is a non-trivial exercise. So my use case is as follows. I have two machines that I use as jail hosts and have several server machines set up as jails, mainly single-use bastion hosts like DNS, internal mail server, etc. I wrote a couple of scripts to give me the ability to migrate jails between the jail hosts and back them up to my NAS. However, I kind of get the sense that some of the newer systems like CBSD and T have a lot of these features baked in. Having said that, I want Whatever I use to roll neatly into vanilla FreeBSD, I don't want a solution like, say, Proxmox VE, which is built on Debian, but it's really its own specialized appliance. Since one of the boxes I'm currently using is for this, uh, is my desktop machine, I don't want to applianceify it. That's a new word. Applianceify it. Cool. Do you get, (laughs) or do you gents have enough familiarity with some of those? tools to do a side-by-side comparison i have looked online but it seems that every body blogging about it has their own favorite and hasn't looked outside their own comfort zone i would like to hear you all discuss if possible the pros and cons of different jail manager that i can provide because i did this at work with one of the few professors who is bsd um yeah friendly i would say and he has asked me because he also wants to migrate away from IOCage because of a couple of errors that they were uh, looking at or can't uh, export big jails. And I sent him something that I found. Uh, it's AppJail. Uh They have a comparison matrix, AppJail.ReadTheDocs.io, and they have a comparison matrix. Of course, their jail manager comes best out of those. But they compare Basti, Pot, IOCage, and EasyJail. And uh which kind of support each individual one has, and depends on what kind of use case you have, you will find a couple of good things there. So I sent him that list. First, look at Basti. That's a nice migration from if you're going from uh, IoCage and it can convert your existing IoCage packages or jails. Then there's pod, which we covered a couple weeks ago on uh the byte-size.de website. And On my own, I have found, because I'm also looking for IOKH replacements at work, um, there is, uh, after pot, uh, there's AppJail. This is github.com slash DTXDF slash AppJail. And there they have the comparison matrix. So depending on what kind of features you want or need, look at this matrix and find, I put this in the show notes, that uh, feature or this particular jail manager to uh, work for you. Many of them are ZFS based, so you can do the send and receive as you have probably used already.
1: I'm a I'm a VM run kind of person for virtual machines, and I just run. Mm-hmm. That. I I just run jail commands by hand. Um, if you're writing your own scripts to automate bits of jails, maybe you just would be happier doing things yourself anyway. like it, It's hard to say. I mean, there's no right answer here. That's why there's so many different tools.
0: Yeah. And of know. course, you can't stay neutral if you're putting your own tool on your own website into the comparison matrix. I haven't looked at all of these, um, but definitely it has a couple of features that are interesting. Do you need those features? Depends. Many of these are networking related. And if you're just running a couple of jails for small things that you test out, then you probably don't need this full feature support. But maybe in the future, as you add more jails, you may want to use a couple of those features.
1: OK. And then the last piece of feedback we have this week is from Nick's Bytes. And they're sharing a link. Hey, guys. Great show. Thank you. I wanted to share this link. Um, I didn't click on this before. I don't know what it's it is. It's a YouTube is. video. Yeah, I don't know what a YouTube video about. I'm going to click on it. You have to wait.
0: What's the title? Oh, oh my internet's really bad.
1: Okay, um, we leave that to the audience no, to click no, on the no, link. No, 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 we're going to get there. Oh, okay, almost. FreeBSD, <laughs> a successful failure. Linux, a failing success. Circuit Rewind. Cool. Coming from Linux, I found BSD to be refreshing and stable with a bit more control over my software. I'm kind of a Unix nerd, learning its history, tools, and reason why it's been around for so long. To this day, I know it's the Unix philosophy can still be applied today to technology, In it has stood the test of time even when unix linux system keep up the great work thanks and i'm sure someone will click through and watch this youtube video um i have many six hour long youtube videos queued up in in the way first but i'm (laughs) happy to watch more youtube
0: yeah that's what holidays are for right uh
1: (laughs) it's really funny right like so i might i might have been on tv today and you? I've, I've, why are you excited?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, because you don't look like a person who would jump in front of a camera.
1: Ah, oh, but I was strapped to a chair, so it was, it was much easier. Oh, was, now ca- it gets
0: even more interesting. I, I, was, what I, was, kind
1: I of... was doing stain. they were forming ah, some, filming okay. some promo for Scottish um, Blood Transfusion Service. No, no torturing was okay. They need a lot of <laughs> blood over Christmas. Anyway,
0: because um, when you said tor- you tied to a chair, I was immediately reminded of the, <laughs> the Casino
1: Royale uh, scene. <laughs> Holy God. Come on, Benedict. Um there's like sort of a novelty to it. Like I I of said, like I thought it was just funny, like it's entertaining. And I understand in the passive would have been a big thing, but I was just thinking there like, oh YouTube, I love YouTube. I've even been on YouTube. Yeah, anyone yeah. can be on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, that's the way TV is now, right? Like I'm sure anyone anyone who actually wanted to go on TV could be. Um yeah. I guess. Anyone can be on the news if they try hard enough, but please don't. Mm. You're a in <laughs> out of TV, right? So there's yeah that. We're on TV. Yeah, I have a we have a TV. Don't do a lot of video
0: for our TV. But maybe in 2024 as a kind of, of, a of teaser, those. we we could do more
1: TV stuff in our own little TV world. It's all it's all hinging on you, Benedict. Every, uh, listeners, write in and say Benedict, throw your life out and Should, yeah, uh, do more TV. DSD I can't thingy. I can't help with the situation without moving house and it's fine yeah yeah I, I, can, I really I want have to move house the bandwidth. I just don't have a lot of control over it
0: both both the personal bandwidth and, well I'm saying that now but maybe I don't but the personal bandwidth and the network bandwidth to do these things so we've we did streaming in the past a little bit testing and uh, maybe in 2024 I don't want to promise too much but it looks like we can uh, give you live video for the people who need or want to see what we are doing and
1: wonderful if we... you want to write in and give us some feedback so we can talk about it you can get us at feedback at bsdnow.tv and if you would like to join our getting louder but kind of quiet telegram channel it is at <laughs> t.me slash now or something like that and it'll be in the show notes Who knows? Hmm? it's a surprise yeah. um interesting stuff there come join us all
0: right thank you for listening till next week